0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Welcome to another Redux episode. One of the themes that kept returning during my earlier interviews was race. This is a really tough episode for me because, essentially, it requires facing the fact that we have someone in the White House who embodies the ugliest part of America. Racism. We fought wars to rid the stain of racism. We've tried to protest it away. We've tried to shame it away. We've tried to vote it away. But there it sits, the stain of racism in the White House. You know, Trump showed us who he was in 1973 when he and his father were sued for their discriminatory rental practices. So when he came out as a birther during Obama's presidency, it may have surprised some people, but others knew exactly who he was all along. And so, of course, his first executive action was the travel ban. He could not wait to rid the country of people he thought were undesirable in his eyes. And one of my first guests on the lecturette was Maryam Zaringhalem. She's a science and technology policy fellow at the National Institutes of Health. She's from a family of scientists, and her parents also immigrated from Iran. Maryam was actually traveling in Iran during the first travel ban, and in this clip, Maryam gives a powerful account of what that experience was like for her. Take a listen. Something that shouldn't have been an issue, and it wouldn't have been an issue just a year ago, but it turns out it was an issue. So, when you're in Iran visiting, what was your experience? What was going through your mind?
1: There was uh, a lot of fear and anxiety initially because I, I was born here in America and I grew up feeling very much like an American, but an American who had this other side to me, who Um, grew up with many of the traditions of Iranian culture and, you know, perhaps that's, that's in part why I was so attracted to science and engineering because Iran has this rich culture of science and engineering and you know, I, I'd had experiences growing up where I learned, you know, right after 9-11, I learned that that, that part of my identity of being an Iranian American could be problematic for people because, you know, I was just in eighth grade and I grew up in the suburbs of New York and, I heard a rumor that there was this girl or I heard that there was this girl who was spreading a rumor about me and my family that we were members of the Taliban, which is so completely absurd because we're just this, you know, boring family, like a doctor and an engineer and, you know, two kids, very cookie, cookie cutter family who just happened to be um, from Iran. And this rumor started spreading and it was so deeply hurtful and painful because I, as an American, was grieving after this incredible loss, this incredible tragedy. And I felt excluded and I like I wasn't allowed to grieve with with the rest of my country, men and women and. I think that has acutely been in the back of my brain, you know, learning that you are different at such a young age and that people will very quickly turn to judge you. And that being in Iran during that travel ban felt very much like that times a thousand. You know, I I know that Islamophobia has been growing in this country. I know the rhetoric around Iran, um, has been so negative in this country, but but it felt like 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 a rejection of of me. You know, my my parents if my parents were trying to come to America today, they wouldn't be allowed to. And they met here in this country and they fell in love here in this country and they got married here in this country and they had me and my brother here in this country and that would not have been possible. I wouldn't have been possible under this administration. And, you know, all of this is coursing through my brains, disjointed as it's coming out right now as I'm talking to you. But but it was extremely depressing and, and dark. We're watching all of this play out on the Iranian news, which, is, which happens to be state-sponsored. And so they, you know, play the same clips over and over and over again. And then I went out of the house for a bit to, to go on a walk, and I came back, and I see that there's this new clip that's playing. And uh, I look on the screen, and I see that there are images of protests that are breaking out all around the country. And there's people in JFK and in Dallas Airport, and they're holding signs that say, um, Love Trump's Hate. And no band, no wall, and Muslims are welcome here. And, (laughs) sorry. And I've always been sort of protest averse. It feels kind of like preaching to the choir or preaching for a change that might not ever come. But I saw in that moment that Americans were expressing themselves in a way that the administration was not. That when, that when an administration's policies run counter to how we feel as Americans and the values that we hold, that we have this amazing power to gather and protest and raise our voices and our signs and say that this is exactly who we are and it'll make it all the way out into the rest of the world onto Iranian state-sponsored television, no less. And in that moment, I felt so proud to be to be an American and so proud of, of all of these people that were coming to support people like my family, people like me, who have been targeted by this administration. It felt incredibly empowering and uniquely American and, and a real push for change.
0: The next clip features my conversation with Dr. Katherine Squires. Dr. Squires is a professor at the University of Minnesota, and she's written several books on race, gender, and the media. In this clip, we discuss how the Say Her Name hashtag has been used to bring attention to women of color who've been victims of violence. Right, so one of the interesting things about using this hashtag in relation to these shootings is that prior to this, I think both hashtags had not been associated with with mass shootings, right? They'd been associated with police brutality. And I think that the say her name hashtag was used with Sandra Blandon actually before that. So what was to gain by broadening the scope of the use of that hashtag?
2: Well, I think in part because, you know, one of the victims was a reverend from the church. And so in the Black lives matter pantheon of names part of the reason why i say her name is was even necessary is to elevate the fact that women were also being victimized by state agents like police or prison guards etc whereas the face of the black lives matter movement so to speak had always been male even if the activists who started the hashtag themselves were were women identified people so i think in this case i mean why i was attracted to this case and how the say her name hashtag became part of it is exactly what you said. This hadn't been part of mass shootings. You know, there was no say her name going on with the UCSB shootings when Elliot Roger massacred people in Santa Barbara. Um, of course, none of the the female victims there were African-American, but I do think it's really interesting to think about how a hashtag that was originally associated with state sanctioned violence, like police violence, then moved over very quickly to a white supremacist shooting which really shows the resonance between the racist underpinnings of racial profiling and the ways that African Americans are overpoliced and thus also overexposed to police violence and that there's really a connection there between the anti-black violence of Dylan Roof and the anti-black violence of police. So I want to talk a little bit about the history
0: of the Say Her Name hashtag, right? Because like I said before, my awareness of it started with Sandra Bland, but it was introduced before that, I think in 2015 by the African American Policy Forum. They introduced the hashtag to, I guess, create a subset from the Black Lives Matter movement. And I you know it's funny I was talking to someone today and I and I mentioned the hashtag and I was talking about you know doing this podcast and they'd heard of the Black Lives Matter hashtag but not the Say Her Name movement which I think is really interesting. So the I guess the people who introduced the Say Her Name hashtag why was there a need to introduce a gender specific hashtag separate from Black Lives Matter?
2: Well, I think you you pretty much said it in your own intro there that the idea that women are equally vulnerable to police violence is sometimes hard for people to wrap their minds around because for so long, the the face of the Black victim of racist violence has been, you know, a male lynching victim or a male victim of a police shooting or a male civil rights leader who is martyred, right? And so because our public imagery is so overrepresented with Black male victims of this kind of racist violence, to actually have to generate a specific hashtag to get people to see how vulnerable women of color also are to this kind of violence is necessary. And you wouldn't think that would be the case, you know, in the 21st century, but it really is. And it also resonates really well with a lot of the work that's been going on about the prison industrial complex, where we see that women and specifically women of color are the fastest growing proportion of people behind bars, mostly for nonviolent offenses. And so that same pattern of over and hyper policing communities of color is, of course, going to also impact uh, women and girls who are in those communities, not just because they might be related to men, who get caught up in the system, but they're also getting caught up in the system and being abused by the perpetrators of that system, um, sometimes literally being caught in the crossfire when police are coming to arrest or harass other people in their households. And sometimes they are the targets themselves, as in the case of Sandra Bland. Some of the
0: examples of the classic display of patriarchal behaviors in the Charleston shooting?
2: Well, Dylan Roof, I think the classic, I mean, I I hate to even repeat the things that that he said or that were found in his, you know, social media, but you know, the the most chilling thing that was reported was that he told one of the survivors that he had to do it because black men were coming for white women. And so that really old and violent understanding of white patriarchal privilege, where white men use the defense of white women as an excuse to terrorize. Black communities. The idea of white female purity being at the apex of civilization and that white men are bound to protect that white womanhood, which of course means ensuring white purity for the next generation because, you know, the, the, the threat of the the black male to the white female is that, quote unquote, they'll pollute the blood of the next generation. So, you know, from the era of slavery through the Ku Klux Klan, through the anti-integration resistance in the 50s and the 60s, and that continues today, that idea that, you know, Ida B. Wells famously called a threadbare lie and then almost got lynched herself back in the 1890s. It just has so much purchase in this neo-Confederate mindset, this idea that Black people's sexuality is out of control and white men are the ones who need to control it.
0: Right, and I think someone pointed out that the logic just breaks down because most of the victims in the Charleston shooting were women. So, you know, if he, you know, his justification was to, you know, protect white women from from black men, that that kind of breaks down. I'm not really sure, you know, how you can make that that
2: connection or how he made
0: that connection. But,
2: you know, I guess we don't want to go too deeply into his brain. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, just destroying black bodies, whether they're male or female, right, is is just, it's open season, correct? And for him, he he picked a place where he could be pretty sure he'd be the only person armed, right? And also, destroying Black women means you're destroying the future mothers, you know, and sisters and aunts and grandmothers of a community as well. So we know that one of the main weapons of war is always to attack and try to degrade women. And we see that all over the world with you know, mass rape being a weapon of war. So, you know, for people who believe in like a race war, if they, if they believe in white supremacy and that it's really a numbers game. And if you actually, one of my, one of my, one of my colleagues is actually writing a book about white women in the neo-Nazi movement. And one of their big goals is to have as many children as possible to outbreed the what they call the inferior races who are breeding too much. Um, and so you'll see these websites and they actually weaponize their children. They say, you need to have a quiver full. So they, they imagine their children to be arrows that they can then shoot out into society to do battle. So if you don't have a quiver full of children, then you're not a good archer. So this mother as race warrior by having more than two children and is just, it's part of that whole, that whole community, that whole sub community that imagines this sort of zero sum game in a race war that white women do their duty by having more children. So that's a big digression, <laughs> but the logic is actually there, right? That, yeah. that it's. It's, it's your, it's part of the battle is to out, outbreed, um, and outlast.
0: Right. I think somebody missed the point of, of motherhood. I
2: <laughs> um. Yes. I think there's a lot of things about family that are warped.
0: In these final clips, I talked to Ruth DeFoster. She's also a professor and she's an expert on terrorism and mass shootings. Here we discuss how Trump himself has fueled the current climate of racism in the country. So what impact has the Trump administration had on mass shootings and how we cover them and how we think about them?
3: I think it's had an enormous impact. I mean, we we have, you know, an administration standing behind a president who calls black NFL players sons of bitches. While simultaneously, you know, out of the other side of his mouth saying that there were many fine people among the white supremacists in Charlottesville who literally murdered an innocent young woman. I mean, this is a man for whom overt racism and racial animus was a cornerstone of his campaign. And it's a cornerstone of his presidency, too. And so I think it's so telling that. Trump and members of the Trump administration have little to nothing to say about white shooters and about white terrorists, but they are always ready to condemn the merest hint of Islamic extremism and to use it as a sort of political cudgel to argue that Muslims should be banned from the United States. And he and his administration have even argued that news media are actively hiding the truth about Islamic extremism. This is like really insidious Orwellian stuff. Um, You probably remember Kellyanne Conway's just bizarre invocation of an imaginary terrorist attack. Remember this, the Bowling Green massacre? Yes. (laughs) She referred to this in (laughs) two separate interviews and she used it to justify President Trump's travel ban, barring citizens from Muslim countries from entering the United States. And in February, the White House took this rhetoric A step further, when Trump claimed, and this is a quote, that the very, very dishonest press was deliberately and maliciously refusing to report upon acts of terror. And when they were pressed to provide evidence for this claim, they they very hastily released this, this list of 78 incidents that they asserted were underrepresented And and, I mean, the list was absurd, right? It had numerous holes. There were lots of entries that lacked data. They misspelled persons. They misspelled San Bernardino. They misspelled the word attacker. (laughs) It was roundly (laughs) castigated by news outlets worldwide for the inclusion of all these incidents that obviously were not underreported, like the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting, which received wall-to-wall coverage, the 2016 bombings in Brussels. No one could claim with a straight face that these acts were ignored or suppressed, but they did. But the list for me as a, as a terrorism scholar and a, as someone who studies mass shootings, this list provided me with something else, something that was really illuminating. And it was this fascinating and terrifying snapshot of the subjective and self-serving way that the Trump White House defines terror. So the minor and lesser known incidents that made this list really only seem to have one thing in common. They were committed by Muslims. Meanwhile, the list completely omitted attacks that were committed by white supremacists during the same period. The 2014 murder of three people at a Jewish community center in Kansas. There was a 2014 murder of police officers in Las Vegas. The Charleston church shooting in 2015. The January murder of six people at a mosque in Quebec by Alexander B. Sinet. Those admissions speak volumes because this administration is, is not shy about the fact that it asserts that only Muslims can be terrorists. They make no secret of this. But it's a dangerous historical road to go down. And I'm particularly reminded of this when I read this week that under Trump, the FBI's counterterrorism division just widened its domestic terrorism designation to include what it calls black identity extremists. This is disturbing for a couple of reasons, because A... It's clearly a thinly veiled attempt to justify surveillance on groups like Black Lives Matter and other black activist groups. And B, this designation doesn't describe any meaningful terrorist movement at all or any credible threat. Black Lives Matter is not a terrorist organization. It's a decentralized, it's an amorphous group of overwhelmingly peaceful activists who are now enduring the same kind of sort of hateful slander that the 20th century civil rights movement faced. But meanwhile, at the same time, since 2008, since the election of Barack Obama for the first time, there's been this dramatic rise nationwide in right-wing white nationalist hate groups. And for Americans, if you live in the United States... These far-right groups pose a far greater statistical threat to your health and your happiness and your safety in terms of violence and annual fatalities than any international Islamic terrorism. But this administration just isn't concerned with facts. They're concerned with pushing this narrative that demonizes and marginalizes groups that have little social power, religious, ethnic, racial minorities, undocumented children under DACA, Muslims, women, Black Americans. They're concerned with just fueling this racist white rage that keeps them in power.
0: You know, one of the patterns that you often see in media coverage is how violence in urban areas is treated, right? Chicago is a really popular one for the right. And on the left, you know, I think it's just, you know, overlooked.
3: Yeah. I mean, you see, that's a narrative that's come up quite a bit from the administration is to sort of pivot to Chicago. Anytime someone talks about, for example, gun legislation or common sense gun reform, we'll say, well, look at Chicago that has some of the tightest gun laws in the nation and yet some of the highest rates of gun violence. Of course, the reason for that is because all of the surrounding vicinities, areas, and states have incredibly lax gun laws and it's no trick at all to put a gun in your back seat and drive it into Chicago, which is exactly what happens. But that doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative, I mean, it's relying on this dog whistle racial politics that demonizes and blames people of color for violence in their own communities while refusing to grapple with white violence and far right terror.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. And please support Electorate by visiting us on Facebook and on Twitter. It's facebook.com slash and twitter.com slash Electorate. Also, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Electorate. Again, thank you for listening today. And until the next time, keep up the good fight.